So back to the war chapters. They are a pattern of a war that began in heaven, and we must win. Not a single dispensation has won that war, and that's not an option for us. We must win this war, otherwise the, the Lord rejects us and finds another people who will, because he needs to come, and we've got to win the war. We've got to kick Satan out. He can't be present during the millennium. And again, it's not that Satan is bound and kicked out. What removes Satan? How do we win the war against Satan? How do we kick Satan out? He leaves because he has no room in our lives. And so we've got to be the people that kick him out of our lives so that he has no room to stay here. And so we're looking at these war chapters as the antidote on how to win that battle. Now, we saw last time that Amalekiah is a type of Satan. Understanding how he operates is phenomenal. That's one of the greatest insights I think I've ever gained in the Book of Mormon is to see how the enemy operates. Years ago, when I was a young person, I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, if I were Lucifer, I wouldn't come and tempt me to do something sinful and, and horrible. I would slowly integrate myself into your life until I had you. And then I read Alma chapter 47. And it was like, oh my goodness, that's exactly how he operates. I defeat Satan when I do one of two things or do two of two things. I defeat Satan when I don't take a step down. Or if I have, how do I defeat Satan? I get back up to the mountain. That gives me all power over Lucifer. Okay, so let's get to what was Moroni doing while Amalekiah was gaining control and power over the Lamanites. Let's look at the other side. What is Moroni doing? So turn to chapter 48. So we did Alma 47 last time. So now let's go to Alma 48. Now I would love to get into Moroni as a type of Christ but we just don't have time to do that. I'll leave that for you. Moroni is a type of Christ. What I want to focus on is what is he doing that allows the success of the Nephites when the battle rages? Let's just, let's start in chapter one. We need to go back to Amalekiah. Verse one, as soon as Amalekiah had obtained the kingdom, he began to inspire the hearts of the Lamanites against the people. Verse two, he did inspire their hearts. He did inspire their hearts. Now, why? He has two motives. Number one in verse two, what's his motive number one? What is Satan's number one motive? He wants to rule over all the people. His greatness is his motive. My greatness and I want to be ruler over all. Now, what's his unspoken but obvious second motive? Verse four. I want to hurt them. I want to hurt the Nephites. I want to rule over everyone, and I want them to suffer and be in pain. So I think that's very telling of Satan's motives. I want to rule over everyone, and I want those who didn't choose me as the Redeemer to suffer. Now notice verse 5. He's pointing, who does he appoint as captains of the army? Why the Zoramites? Nephite apostles. Now, I'm going to pause and comment on that in just a minute. But that's the situation. A man who's thirsting for the destruction of the Nephites and wanting to rule over them, who has appointed Zoramites as chief captain. Now, how do we defend against that? One defense, obviously, is don't come down from the mountain. 
stay in your covenants. President Nelson said, well, we'll see this in just a minute, but let me say it now. President Nelson said that when the renovations on the Salt Lake Temple are done, where will be the safest place during an earthquake in Salt Lake City to be? In that temple. That will be the safest place to be if there's ever an earthquake. And then he said, in the turmoil of your life, where is the safest place to be? In your temple covenants. I have all power over Satan until I let him in. But there are some other suggestions we need to talk about. So verse 7, notice going back to the first one, Moroni on the other hand was doing what? He was preparing the minds of the people to be faithful unto the Lord. The only way we lose this war, the only way we lose this war is if we break our covenants. But now today's point is in verse 8. What else is he doing? Tell me what I need to do if I really want to defeat Satan. What's he doing in verse 7? Or sorry, verse 8. He's strengthening what? Go to verse 9. The weakest parts. He's strengthening the weakest parts. When they attack, when the Lamanites attack, where are they going to come? Go to chapter 49. Where are they going to come? Starting in verse 1, where do they see them first? Ammoniah. Now, why is that significant? Why are they going to Ammoniah? Alma, Amulek, women burning, children burning. They've already destroyed that city. The Lamanites have already destroyed that city. So tell me where Satan coming first. Where he's won before. He's coming back to where he's had success. Now, lesson. What was Moroni doing with Ammoniah? I'll go to verse 3. Sorry. Verse 3 is, they came back because the Lamanites had destroyed it once. They supposed it would again become an easy prey for them. There's the strategy of Lucifer. Now verse 4. They were disappointed because... Okay, so lesson number one. If Satan has had success in the past, have you rebuilt your Ammonias? Was your repentance sufficient to rebuild Ammoniah? Or is it still a weakness? Now, where do they go next? Jump down to verse 12. Where do they go next? Noah. Tell me why. Supposing that it be the next best place for them to come against the Nephites. I want you to read verse 14 and 15 and tell me why they went to Noah. It had hitherto been what? A weak place. In fact, go to verse 15. What do we add? As the city of Noah had hitherto been the weakest so tell me what Moroni's been doing. Tell me what Moroni's been doing. Here's a hard thing. Here's a harsh reality. He has been identifying where are we the weakest and then strengthening it. 
Now that requires a huge dose of humility. To say to yourself, what are my weaknesses? We don't like your weaknesses. Can I give you an example? I knew we wouldn't have time to do this, but normally I would hand out a blind spot test. Do you know how you have a blind spot in your eye? Where the optic nerve gathers the information from all the cones and retinas, there's no cones and retinas. So where the optic nerve is, there's no cones and retinas, and so you have a blind spot. So why don't you see holes in your vision? Two reasons. Why don't you see holes in your vision? Number one, this eye is not blind where this eye is. And so I see clearly in this eye where this eye is blind and vice versa. But even when I close my eyes, I could show you you have a blind spot. But why don't you see a hole in your vision? The brain does not. <laughs> because and the brain, not only is it awesome, but what? The brain doesn't like holes in our vision. So what does my brain do? It fills it in. And I would suggest that our human nature does not like to admit what? We don't like to admit weakness. We do not like to be weak. Our society says weakness is a negative quality. But may I simply teach the correct, what's the correct doctrine about weakness? Our society says weakness is a negative attribute. You're not allowed to be weak. But what is the doctrine? You all know it. Ether 12, 27. I give unto men weakness as a gift. Your weakness is his gift to you. Why? So you and I can partner with each other. Your weakness is God's gift to you. If you what? Should we read it? We should probably pull this up. I got, you got to see this verse. This verse is, I think, one of the great doctrinal contributions of the Book of Mormon. It might give us, right? It doesn't necessarily give us humility. Whoops, I don't want that one. I want this one. All right, let's read it. Can we read it? Please, James. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. Now here's the doctrine, ready? I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong. I love this word. Your weakness is what? A gift. If you do what? If you humble yourself. I believe the message of the Book of Mormon is in order to win the war against Satan, you must be humble enough to identify what is your Noah. How is he going to win and then fortify it? So allow me to give you two suggestions on how to identify your weakness and fortify against it. Suggestion number one, 
I'm going to put a link in this week's class. A couple days I'll upload the recording and there's going to be a link on that page to a marvelous talk by Elder, then Elder Oaks called Our Strengths Can Become Our Downfall. I'm going to suggest one of the best ways to f- identify a weakness is to look for a strength. What you do well is almost without fail your potential weakness. Think about a few examples. Someone who's really intelligent. Now that's a huge gift and that's a huge asset. They're very intelligent. But what often comes with intelligence? When they are learned, they think they are wise. They hearken not unto the counsels of God, supposing they know of themselves. Therefore, their wisdom is a weakness. Their strength has become a weakness. Elder Oaks tells a story about a man who had the gift of healing. Now, what a tremendous gift, a gift of healing. Tell me how that might become a weakness. Oh, 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 you, you're sick? You're sick? Come and I will heal you. And the gift now because the strength now becomes a weakness. People who have an incredible ability to love are often deceived by their ability to love. They don't know when to walk away because their emotions tie them so much to someone. They don't know how to walk away. They don't know how to set boundaries and they don't know how to walk away. And therefore their strength becomes a weakness. So there's number one. May I suggest if you want to know where he's coming after you, you identify your strength. Now, suggestion number two is one of the absolute most phenomenal statements I've ever read about the prophet Joseph Smith. I believe you have been given hints about your weakness your whole life. Joseph Smith said the following. I'll bring it up here so we can read it together. Man, this blows me away. I went one day to the prophet with a sister. She had a charge to make against one of the brethren for scandal. When her complaint had been heard, the prophet asked her if she was quite sure that what the brother had said of her was utterly untrue. She was quite sure that it was. Will you remember that? She was sure that the rumor was false. He then told her to think no more about it, for it couldn't harm her. If untrue, it could not live, but the truth will survive. Great truth there. Still, she felt she should have some redress. Joseph, they did me harm. You need to fix this. Then he offered her his method of dealing with such cases for himself. When an enemy had told a scandalous story about him, which had often been done, before he rendered judgment, he paused and let his mind run back to the time and place and setting of the story to see if he had not by some unguarded word or act laid the block on which the story was built. He found that if he had done so, 
He said that in his heart, he then forgave his enemy and felt thankful that he had received a warning of a weakness that he had not known he possessed. Who thinks like that? People who defeat Satan. People who are willing to say, Noah is our weakest city. Will you help me rebuild it? Now, what might the people of Noah have said? What would natural the people of Noah to have said? We're not the weakest. You don't need to rebuild us. And where do the Lamanites attack? Boom. Every rumor about you, every criticism, even when intended to hurt you, is an opportunity to give you a little feedback about a weakness you have. That is phenomenal thinking. Did I do something upon which that was built? Can I give you an example? Allow me to embellish a little bit. I hit six feet in sixth grade. I was a sixth grader, I was six feet tall. Ninth grade, I'm 6'3", and I weigh 122 pounds. Do you know what I looked like growing up? Now, in all those years, and all those kindergartens, and all those playgrounds, and all the mean things that people tried to say to me, not, one did anyone, not once did anyone ever call me fat. Now, that's a legitimate insult to call me fat. But why did no one ever call me fat? James? Amanda? It was so obviously not true that calling me that would never do what? Would never hurt me. So we learned a trick when we were young. What's the trick? You take an element of truth and that's what you throw. Now, if you're wise, you will realize in every insult, in every critique, in every horn honk, in every comment your mom ever gave, a hint at a weakness that you possess. Now, are you going to hear it or are you going to brush it off? Joseph heard it. He then said to the sister, he would have her do the same, search her memory thoroughly and see if she had not herself unconsciously laid the foundation for the scandal that annoyed her. The sister thought deeply for a few moments and then confessed that she believed she had. Now, what did she say earlier? The rumor was false. But then when she thought about it, is there any truth to it? Did you say something or do something that might have been the brick on which the rumor was spilt? And she said, yes. The sister thought deeply and confessed that she believed he had. The prophet then told her in her heart she should forgive that brother who had risked his own good name and her friendship to give her this clearer view of herself. The sister thanked her advisor and went away in peace. Are you humble enough to listen to what's being said? Can I give you an example? My wife quite often will say to me, we're having a conversation and I'm 
on my phone or thinking about something else and I'm not paying attention and she knows it, she'll often say something sweet like, I'll wait. I'll wait. Now, what is she really saying, Amanda? Put your phone you have a problem. You are easily distracted when I'm trying to tell you something important. Now, she didn't say that, did she? What she said was, I'll wait. <laughs> but what I needed to hear was, you have a weakness. And it bothers your wife. Listen. Now, are you humble enough to hear it? Let me give you an encouragement. What's the balance between... Like we all have, you said our weaknesses are connected to our strengths. But what's about like focusing on your weaknesses to the point where it like starts to take away part of your strength? Then that is now your weakness. Do you see? Obsessing over my weakness is now my weakness. So obsessing over a flaw might really be the weakness. And so there's the balance. How do I acknowledge a weakness knowing that I have a tendency to obsess over it? And you have to answer that question. But when you finally recognize what the weakness is, because I was humble enough to hear, now are you humble enough to fix it? Do you see what the Book of Mormon seems to be? I love the city of Noah. I can't wait to find out where it is. Because if I could have a little piece of dirt from the city of Noah as a reminder of what that city stands for, are you willing to ask the questions, what am, where am I weak? That's a tough question to ask. But it takes a little bit of, you know what? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to obsess over it. Okay, there's my weakness. Not that one. This is my real weakness. Obsessing over my weaknesses is my weakness. Because I want to be right. And there's my strength. That often becomes. Does that help? All right, let me give you another one. Then President Boyd K. or Elder Boyd K. Packer. Whoops. I love this one. Can't wait to meet Patriarch Lee, too. Elder Packer said, let me share with you something I learned from S. Norman Lee, once our stake president, then our patriarch in Brigham City. Shortly after we were married, I was invited to speak in a sacrament meeting. Patriarch Lee was seated on the stand. As the meeting closed, he said to me, that was a fine talk, Brother Packer, but may I point out that the correct pronunciation of this one word is as follows. To which I replied with some impudence, oh, is that so? Later, I felt very ashamed of myself, and I called Patriarch Lee and apologized. I asked, him for the, for the, I asked him for the correction. I thanked him for the correction and invited his continued interest. Shortly thereafter, I was called to the stake high council and on frequent occasion spoke in meetings where Patriarch Lee was in attendance. Always he would compliment me and then add a correction or a suggestion. Always I tried to respond with sufficient appreciation to encourage him to continue his interest. A desire to learn is one thing. An expressed willingness to be taught and to be corrected is quite another. I have found, and we have taught our children, that there is always a patriarchly type 
someone, usually someone older and experienced, who knows much about the challenges you face, whether they be spiritual or temporal, it is worth inviting them to help you. While there is great value in seeking a personal interview to receive counsel, what I am talking about is something else. It is an unstructured process with counsel and suggestions offered in bits and pieces and you responding with thanks. There's the skill. I recognize the bits and pieces that are coming and I'm thankful for them. That process survives only where there is a genuine desire to learn and an invitation to those who can teach and correct you. That invitation is not always in words, but more in attitude. Once when I returned from a mission tour totally exhausted, my wife said to me, I've never seen you so tired. What is the matter? Did you find a mission president who wouldn't listen? No, I replied, it was just the opposite. I found one who wanted to learn. Many will say they will want to learn, but will feel threatened if there is the slightest element of correction in what they are given. He wanted to learn. That president now sits in the Council of the Twelve Apostles. It was M. Russell Ballard. He wanted to learn. I have learned that few respond when that kind of teaching or correction is offered, and fewer still invited. But the Book of Mormon seems to suggest if you want to win the war against Satan, you have to be willing to acknowledge that God has given you weakness. It's a gift. If you will humble yourself and partner with him to strengthen it. If you ignore it, if you pridefully think it's not a problem, if you don't want to admit that you have a weakness, guess where the Lamanites are coming? and they will pour through that city and into the heart of your land. Let me leave. Yes. Um, I have a very sincere question. I'm not, I'm not joking at all, but I am very curious. Like, what if um, a particular issue I have is with this tendency to turn my goal-setting achievements? Like, I'm very, I'm very good at staying organized, I set a goal and I accomplish that goal, but then I tend to go way too far into like a perfectionistic tendency to where I then get clobbered by my own expectations and end up pulling myself back down. I was just thinking over the last few months, I have been deeply struggling with um, with just battling perfectionism. And some people kind of mock that. It's like, well, there's a lot of other difficult things you could be facing and I'm like you know what you don't know what this is like for me like this is my thing that I'm really struggling with and it it hurts me and it scares me and so sometimes I have this fear of like I feel like I know what my weakness is but I'm also terrified it's not that I I don't know what it is as much as I am terrified of asking the Lord to help me fix it because I'm afraid it's going to hurt a whole lot <laughs> Uh, and so guess what? It is. You are absolutely right. Yep. And sometimes it, that gets back to a hold up or just another disc, another conversation about letting Jesus into my life. And uh, you know, you remember Jill and the lion in the 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 silver chair. She will you do you eat little girls? Will you go away? 
I want to drink at the stream, but will you go away? So I think I would respond by saying you identifying the weakness is what humble enough to identify it is one thing. Humble enough to Ether 12:27, then invite him in to fix it is the second. And you are dead on. Sometimes it's easy to identify the weakness and harder to invite the help. So let me maybe answer your question by one last illustration. I think Jesus isn't the only one to help strengthen that weakness. I think it's the willingness to invite other people like the patriarch Lees in addition to turning to the Savior. It's the acknowledgement to your faculty, to your spouse, to your friends. Hey, I have a tendency to toxic perfectionism and I need your help. It's the willingness to show vulnerability to other people and ask for their help. Let me illustrate. Two men, both pointed to a weakness they possessed. One did something to prevent it and one did not. Now, I do not mean to speak evil of Oliver Cowdery. I'm going to do this in the spirit of Moroni 9.31, condemn me not for mine imperfections, rather give thanks unto God that he has made manifest unto you our imperfections, that you can learn to be more wise than we have been. That's why I want to talk about this, is to be more wise than we have been. But turn with me to Doctrine and Covenants section 23, verse 1. What was Oliver Cowdery told? Oliver Cowdery was told, section Doctrine and Covenants 23, verse 1. Beware of pride. Oliver, you have a weakness, and it's pride. Now, do you in the history of the church see Oliver doing anything to check his pride, to prevent him from manifesting pride? I love Alma 15, where... Alma and Amulek go into Sidon after Ammoniah was dead. They wouldn't leave until there was a check on their pride. Do you find anything in Oliver Cowdery's life to check his pride? If you were to go read the accusations against him at his excommunication, why was Oliver Cowdery excommunicated? One word, pride. Now, go to section 23. Verse 9, 24. 24, sorry. What was Joseph Smith told? Joseph, you have a weakness. What is it? In temporal things, you won't have strength. Joseph, you're not very good at writing things down. Case in point, can anyone tell me how the Melchizedek priesthood was restored? We know how the Aaronic priesthood was restored. John the Baptist, upon you, my fellow servants. Can anyone tell me the words that Peter, James, and John used when they restored the Melchizedek priesthood? Or where? Or what day? We know from the revelations that it happened, section 27. But we have no idea what happened that day. Why? Because Joseph never wrote it down. Something as important as the restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood. He didn't write it down. He never wrote it down. And we don't have it. So tell me what Joseph did. From the very beginning, 
What did Joseph do? He's told he has a weakness with temporal things, and so he hires a scribe. His whole life, he hired a scribe. And what was he saying? I acknowledge that I have a weakness, and Amanda, could you help me with it? So maybe an answer to her question, which is a powerful question, maybe the willingness to seek help isn't just in seeking the Lord's help. Maybe it's in seeking the people around me. Maybe the best people to help me are the very people I'm trying to hide that from. She's a teacher. She's a seminary teacher. And what would happen if you told your students, hey, I have a problem with this. Would you help me with it? Or my faculty. Or my roommate. Or a spouse. Or my children. Now, the reality is that my children are some of the very people I'm trying to hide my weaknesses from. But who could help me better than anyone else? The people who know me the best. And the irony is we hide from the people that know us the best our weaknesses. And yet they're the ones that can help us the most. So let me ask the question differently. Are you humble enough to seek to know a weakness? And then are you humble enough to ask for the help you need to fix it? Okay, now we have to move on. Any thoughts? Well, I was just going to say, like, I've done dance, like, my whole life. And, like, you spend, like, the whole year getting ready for this competition. Then you go. It's your one, like, three minutes to perform. And there's judges judging you. And I used to hate when the judges would send back their notes. And I'm just like, but we did our best, you know. Like, that was the best we could do. But I have seen, like, as I got older, I was like, they're not doing it to be mean. They have no idea who I am. They're just doing it so the performance looks better, right? And I got to see, like, as I go back and I watch, like, all my old dance videos, like, the progression I had as I took it as less of, like, a complaint and more of a help. A gift. Yeah, like, the gift. A gift. Mm -hmm. And then, like, I've noticed in my own life, like, you were saying, like, I take this advice from total strangers, but then, like, my mom tries to give me a critique, and I'm like, yeah, no, you're talking about (laughs) That's right. I I just dismiss it. And now I treat my mom like I do those judges that I used to highly remember their... Life has changed a lot. You you learn a lot more when you accept. I believe that is the secret to winning the war. God gave me weakness. It's a gift so that I partner with him and with the people who know and love me the most to fix it. I never would be who I am today. And I'm grateful for the people who were honest enough to say, you have a weakness. Can I help you fix it? But it takes that listening ear, doesn't it? It takes that humble listening ear, and it takes that humble, would you help me with this? Would you slap me every time I do that? You bet I will. (laughs) But you're really helping me. Okay, so lesson number, what are we up to? Three, be willing enough to identify your weakest cities and build them up. All right. Lesson number four. Let's go to that battle. Turn with me to Alma chapter 49. When the Lamanites attack, 
um, what happens. A couple insights. I want to throw in a couple insights while we're here. So they supposed that Noah would be the best place to, we left off on verse 15. I love verse 16 and 17. It makes me laugh all the time. Moroni had appointed Lehi to be chief captain over the men of that city, and it was the same Lehi who fought with the Lamanites. Now it came to pass when the Lamanites found that Lehi commanded the city, they were again disappointed. I want the, the Satan's angels to be disappointed at me. I want Satan to wake up. Oh, Bryce is there. Dang it. I, wa- I wonder how disappointed they are that Russell Nelson leads the church today. I think it is a sign of who we are that they are disappointed that we're in charge. Total side note. All right, so they attack. Now, watch what Moroni has done. had done. Verse 18, Lamanites could not get into their forts of security by any other way save by the entrance because of the highness of the bank which had been thrown up and the, di- the depth of the ditch which had been dug re- around about them. Now, verse 20, they were prepared, yea, a body of their strongest men with their swords and their slings to smite down all sh- who should attempt to come into their place of security by the place of entrance. So they're just going to slaughter anyone who comes in through the entrance. Now, what if you try and come over the sides? So there's a huge bank and a ditch. Well, verse 19, what happens? The Nephites were prepared to destroy all such as should attempt to climb up to enter the fort by any other way. What's going to happen here? Look at verse 21. End of verse 21, there was an immense slaughter coming in the entrance. There was an immense slaughter. So then they try and go up the sides. What happens in 22? Now, when they found that they could obtain no power of the Nephites by the pass, they began to dig down the banks of earth that they might obtain a pass to their armies, that they might have an equal chance to fight. But behold, in these attempts, they were swept off by the stones and arrows which were thrown at them. And instead of filling up their ditches by pulling down the banks of earth, they were filled up in a measure with their dead and wounded bodies. Now look at verse 23. And thus the Nephites had all power over their enemies. I've been saying it this whole time. You have all power over Satan. He cannot win. If you stand in your covenants, if you're willing to strengthen your weak spots, you have all power over Satan. Now, I want to point out two things in verse 23. Thus the Lamanites did attempt to destroy the Nephites until their chief captains were all slain. So these captains are the Zoramites, right? Do they care about these men that are dying? What do they keep ordering? Attack, attack, attack. Tell me about fighting for Satan. Tell me about fighting for Satan. He doesn't care about how many he uh, sends at you. Um, He'll just keep sending them and even if they all die. Why would you want to fight on that side? I would testify that fighting on the side of evil is going to lose because evil is inherently selfish. And a team made up of selfish people will do what? Destroy themselves. Why would you fight for that team? It's ironic that the captains of the evil side sacrifice the lives of their people to save them 
the captain of the side of good sacrifices himself to save them. You decide which team you want to be on. But look at the body count. What's the body count in Noah? A thousand Lamanites to zero. Not a single soul of the Nephites was slain. And this is what city? This is which city? Their weakest city. At their weakest city, the body count was a thousand Lamanites to not a single Nephite. Where on earth are the Lamanites going to have any success at all? This war should have been over in one battle. If this is the weakest city and the body count was a thousand to zero, why are there war chapters? Answer? The Nephites opened the front door. We have all power over the enemies unless we open the front door. Now watch what Mormon does. This is chapter 49, right? Chapter 50 is mistake number one. Chapter 51 is mistake number two. How brilliantly is this book put together? We have all power over our enemies unless we make mistake number one. And or mistake number two. So what is mistake number one? Can I make a quick comment before James. I just like thinking about Malachi and Noah as far as like the types of people that we, we see and that we are. You know, because there's people that go as far as Malachi to killing women and children to becoming some of the strongest, as well as Noah being the weakest, becoming the strongest. Different path, right? And just that, you know, there are people like that we run into. Yeah. And do we see them with that potential or not? Yeah, beautiful analogy. I love it. Let's get to mistake number one. What's Moroni continuing to do? In fact, go back to verse one. I didn't highlight this, but go back. Moroni did not stop making preparations for war. He continues to build up the weak spots. He continues to prepare the strongholds against the coming of the enemies round about in every city. And as long as they prevent, as long as they stay in those fortified cities, they're going to be pro- they're going to be prosperous. But tell me what happens in prosperity. They did become exceedingly prosperous. They become rich. Now, tell me why Mormon included verse 21 all of a sudden. I just hear him waving his arms like crazy. Do you Latter-day Saints understand what I'm trying to say? He talks about they have all power over their enemies. The Lamanites had no success. And then he throws this in. It has been their quarrelings and their contentions and their murders and their plunderings and their idolatry and their whoredoms and their abominations, which were among themselves, which brought about that, which brought about them their wars and their destructions. Now watch how he illustrates it. Ready? Verse 23, we got to make sure. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. It just says, and those who are faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord were delivered at all times. So why? 
Why, people? Do you not see what's happening? Does the Lamanite, does the Nephite history not illustrate it enough for you? So in the middle of their happy times, it all starts right here. What happens? There would have been peace among the people had it not been for a contention which took place among them concerning the land of Lehi and the land of Mort Morianton. The people who possessed the land of Mort Morianton did claim part of the land of Lehi. Therefore, there began to be a warm dispute between them insomuch that the people of Morianton took up arms against their brethren and they were determined to slay them. Who are they fighting against? Same team. Now, do you understand how foolish it is? Lamanites, Lehi, Morianton. They're fighting over what? A little sliver of land. And because they're obsessed over that sliver of land, what will it cost them? All their land. Because they're so obsessed over this piece, it will cost them all of that. The warning from the Book of Mormon, mistake number one, is that we forget that there is a real enemy down there. And who do we think the enemy is? Here. You know how he wins? You know how he walks in the front door? He gets us to turn on ourselves. Isn't that what they do? Isn't that the very thing that they do? He gets us to turn on ourselves. Now think about how, well, let's read it and then we'll illustrate. So there began to be a warm contention and now they're going to slay each other. Verse 29, Morianton put it into their hearts that they should flee to the land which was northward. Now, what does Moroni have to do? Verse 23 or 32. Moroni feared that they would hearken to the words of Morianton and unite with his people, and thus he would obtain possession of those parts of the land which would lay a foundation for serious consequences among the people of Nephi. Yea, which consequences would lead to the overthrow of their liberty? So Moroni sent an army with, his camp, with their camp to head the people of Morianton to stop their flight to the land northward. I love verse 35. Teancum was sent. Teancum did meet the, Pori, the, the people of Morianton, and so stubborn were the people of Morianton that a battle commenced between them in the which Teancum did slay Morianton and that he had to kill his own army members. Teancum had to kill Nephite warriors. What's that going to do to the Nephite army? He is weakening his army because of the fight amongst themselves. He has to kill a whole segment of the army and took them prisoner and returned to the camp of Moroni. Because why? I love the word. Now, this didn't necessarily allow the door to swing open, but the weakening of the army, when the door swings open because of mistake number one, 
Guess which cities are taken first? The first city that was taken is Moroni. Starts here in 23. Moroni was taken. And then Nephi was taken. And after that, Lehi and Morianton. So, no, this didn't open the door. But what did this do? It unlocked it. It weakened the defenses. And we fell. Allow me to testify from the Book of Mormon. If you think the enemy is here, then that real one walks in. Now think about what's happening in our society. When a husband thinks the enemy is his wife or the wife thinks the enemy is her husband or parents think the enemy are their children. Have you ever watched parents treat a child like it's an enemy? Have you ever watched a child treat their parents like they're an enemy? What are we doing? We're opening the door to the real enemy who wants nothing more than to destroy us. Are you fooled into thinking the wrong person is the enemy? Have you ever yelled at a sibling or your mom and then the phone rings and you act all nice to the stranger? You're super pleasant to the person on the phone and yet you just yelled at the family member? Have you ever realized we're nicer to strangers than we are to the people we love the most? And we begin to think that the people we love the most are the enemy. And that opens the front door. That unlocks the door. Mistake number one, fighting within. I find it fascinating. Let's read the proclamation. Let's read from the proclamation. I think I pulled it up. Let's read this sentence before the purple. <laughs> you want to know what the proclamation means to me? That's what the proclamation means to me. I think about this document a lot. Let's read this sentence. Happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Successful marriages and families are established and maintained on nine principles. What's number three? Repentance. And what's number four? Forgiveness. Otherwise, we think the wrong people are the enemies. Mistake number one. Don't make mistake number one. All right, what's mistake number two? Chapter 51. I think you know the story, right? Summarize it. Verse 51, nevertheless, you know, it talks about the established peace between Lehi and Morianton. Nevertheless, they did not long maintain an entire piece of the land, for there began to be a contention among the people concerning the leaders. So mistake number one is, you're my enemy. Mistake number two is, they're my enemy. The moment we think 
The problem is the leadership of the church. There was a part of them who desired that a few particular points of the law should be altered. The brethren are screwing it up. And they won't want him, or when he won't alter, when Pehorn won't alter, they get angry and they do what? They desired that he should no longer be chief judge. Oh my goodness, what's happening in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints right now? Contention among ourselves or dissension from the leadership of the church. Joseph Smith this, Joseph Smith that, Russell Nelson this, Dallin H. Oaks that. I don't want them to be the leaders anymore. Mistake number two. Would you say that even applies at the word level? Yep. My bishop is the enemy. My stake president is the enemy. The prophet is the enemy. And so these become known as the king men. And the king men are what opened the front door. Now I just, I just my, my respect for the Book of Mormon, you know, is so profound. But look how Mormon summarizes this. Two mistakes. It was his first care to put an end to such contentions and dissensions among the people. For behold, this had hitherto, this had been hitherto a cause of all their destruction. Do you hear Mormon waving his hand saying, there's the answer. Do you want to win this war or not? If you want to win this war, this is not the enemy. And this is not the enemy. That is the enemy. Don't forget that. While they are doing this and while they are doing this, what does does Mormon add in verse 9? Amanda, would you read that? Yeah. But behold, this was a critical time for such contentions to be among the people of Nephi. For behold, Malachiah had again stirred up the hearts of the people of the Lamanites against the people of the Nephites. And he was gathering together soldiers from all parts of his land and arming them and preparing them for war with all diligence. For he had sworn to drink the blood of Moroni. What's he saying? What a foolish time for Latter-day Saints to be contending amongst themselves and descending from the leadership of the church because why? The real enemy is coming for blood. And that's where we lose our souls. I know I say it every week, but what would you do without this book? It's as plain as can be to me. When I look around what's happening in the church today, I can summarize it in two words, contention and dissension. And the front door is doing what? And here he comes. The Lord needs a people 
who will stay on top of the mountain, who will stand in their covenants, who will not come down. And if they do, they get right back up to the top of the mountain. The Lord needs a people humble enough to strengthen their weak spots. And he needs a people that never forget that the enemy is there, not here, and not here. Amanda. Can I go back to that verse that we read before? Um, this one, dissensions and this yeah. one? And in the next verse, I kind of read ahead, it talks about how Moroni went back to go against the king men because their problem was with a temporal, it was a temporal problem yeah. with the leader at the time. And he was like, okay, you guys need to humble yourselves and we need to fight this spiritual battle together. So he's taking their focus from the temporal to the spiritual that we need to fight against the Lamanites. Yeah. I, just, I love that. Um, I guess. Beautiful. Connection. And it was written by a 23-year-old. Yeah. Who made it up, right? Who just made it up. Are you kidding me? I love this book. I love the messages, and I admit they're hard to hear. It's hard to be told that God gave me a gift of a weakness. Not the kind of gift I was hoping for. It's hard to be told that God gave me a gift of a weakness. Now, am I humble enough to partner with him and invite other people to help me strengthen it? And then am I wise enough when something comes up here? Am I wise enough to say, that's not the enemy. I'm not going to let this open the door to the real enemy. And when the human frailties of my leaders show themselves, I'm not going to tell myself, that's the enemy. That's the enemy. And I'm not going to be distracted. I bear you my testimony. Those who win the war against, and if it's not us, the Lord will find a people who will. But those who win the war against Lucifer, don't open the front door. And they strengthen up the weak spots of their life. May we be that people is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.